Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Did you know that there is a reason you should love yourself and others? I think most people could at least score 50% on that test question. Yeah, we should love other people, but shouldn't we love ourselves? Our teaching on this matter has been all over the map, and so I hope over the next few moments that we can take a look at this biblically and see what the Bible says, because the truth is, if you do not love yourself, then there, well, there's something wrong and you need to address it. Now, we know that there are a lot of people who do not love themselves. Now, maybe they would say that they do not like themselves, but I'm not going to play on words here. You can pick whichever one you want. But there are many people who do not like themselves. They do not love themselves. That is one ditch. And then, of course, we know in the other ditch, we have those who just cannot get enough of themselves. Some people call them narcissistic. Well, both of those extremes are wrong. But in the middle of the road, there is a biblical love that we should have for ourselves. You hear some people talk about, well, I just don't like the way I am made. Maybe the way that God created me, or I don't like things about myself. And then you have others who go to the extreme where they do self-harm, where they are really in that ditch of shame and guilt. Some of them even go so far that they would take their lives. And so there has to be a biblical teaching that says we love ourselves. I do think sometimes because the teaching in our culture can be so extreme that we can swing like a pendulum and too far and miss what the Bible clearly teaches. And so let's talk a little bit about love. Now, love is a verb. You've heard that. It is an action word. Love is always on the move, and it's always going in one direction or another. Love will not work if it is not moving toward something. What you'll find with love is that it'll always be sandwiched between a subject and an object, because love actually expects the subject to move it toward an object. Love standing alone in the corner, not doing anything, well, that's a neutral concept. It can't survive long without moving. Love is fluid. Without the giver and without the receiver, love is not what love is supposed to be. Now, we see this threefold cooperative requirement of love, subject, verb, object, in the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16, here it is, for God, the subject, so loved the verb, the world, us, the objects, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let me take a little coffee break right here, especially for those of you who may have stumbled upon this podcast or video And you say, well, I have never heard that verse before. What does it mean? Now, one of the reasons I want to share this with you is because that is exactly where I was in 1984. I did not know of God and His love. I knew of God, but not His love and how I was the object of His love that He gave His only Son and that I could believe in Him and not perish in a Christless eternity. Well, I believe the message 
of Christ. I believe the message here in the Bible in John 3:16. God regenerated me and after being born a second time, it made all the difference in the world. And so if you happen to be that person who has not experienced the love of God, then I would encourage you. In fact, if you don't have anybody that that you can talk to, please send us a note. Uh, hit the Get in Touch feature in the bottom of our website and say, Hey, uh, Rick was talking about John 3.16, and I've never been on the receiving end of that kind of love. And so one reason I was in that place that I'm sharing that, I'm taking this brief coffee break here. The other reason is, well, maybe that is you. And if it is, please reach out to us and we would love to guide you to show you how you can be on the receiving end of God's love. And so in that great passage, God, the subject, is the lover and we, the objects, are the loved ones. Now, this verse has brought endless joy to millions of souls as they reflect on the infinite depth and the ever-broadening sweep of God's love. One of the benefits of being on the transformative end of God's love, as I was in 1984, and I still enjoy the benefits to this day, is that we can go out and do likewise, looking for other potential candidates to be objects of God's redemptive love. Because we know the power and the value of love. Well, one of the reasons that we know how important this is, perhaps you may remember a passage of Scripture when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him about the two greatest commandments. And what did he say? I mean, he said, out of the 600 and plus laws in the Old Testament, take the entire Old Testament, every law in it, and the top two have something to do with love to love God, and to love others most of all. Therefore, we know it has power, and we know it has value. That passage of Scripture, by the way, is Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Now, it's in a couple of other places in the four Gospels, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as well. But here it is in Matthew 22. And, the, and he said to them, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now you see the implication there. We do love ourselves. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend all the law and the prophets. In the two great commandments, you note the action of love. It is heading away from the givers and landing on the objects, whether those objects are God or our friends or our enemies. Jesus said that we should love our enemies too. God-centered love has a distinct directional force, and it comes from us and toward others even if those recipients of our love are our enemies. Now, that's God-centered love, but self-centered love is not that. Self-centered love inverts itself on the giver. The giver and the receiver of the action, of the verb, they are one and the same. The love goes out from the giver, and it turns 180 degrees in return 
to the one who sent it. That is self-centered love, where I become the subject, the giver, and the object of love, in addition to this circular self-love endless loop. The self-centered lover, like a crack addict, demands more attention, more acts of service, more words of affirmation, and more sacrifices from others. This person becomes the unfillable love cup. The self-lover depletes and discourages their friends, eventually repelling everyone from them because nobody can carry that much water for the insatiable, selfish, thirsty soul. Eventually, these relationships die. It reminds me of Proverbs 14, 12. I'm going to paraphrase it. There is a way that seems right for the self-centered lover, but the end of that kind of narcissistic life is the death of their relationship. But then you have the gospel-centered love with its counterintuitive message cutting against the grain of our self-esteem practitioners. Loving someone more than me, that does not sound right. It appears foolish and impotent, weak, never providing what I crave. Well, Christ modeled this kind of love when he came to earth as a human by setting aside his greatness for others. And though he sacrificed so much, he understood how following the counterintuitive force and direction of gospel love, it would end well for him. You see a hint of that in Hebrews 12, too, where he could see the end. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Natural humans do not do accounting like Jesus we natively understand that if we give something away as he did, we will have less of what we had before giving it away to someone. I have one of our handy-dandy uh, slimline tumblers here, and we know uh, that if we take this tumbler and, and, and pour out its content, which I'm not going to do here on my laptop, but if we pour it out, there's going to be less in this tumbler than what was in this tumbler before I poured it out. This is the way native humans think. Of course, the problem with this kind of reasoning is that God's ways transcend our ways. He challenges the natural thinker's thoughts. Am I willing to set aside my way for a better way? That is really the question. Do we believe God? Do we believe God's Word? Do we take God's Word as the truth? Can I trust God? Can I trust Christ in this matter of self-sacrificing love? He did it. Eventually, it turned out well for Him. Is it true that if I give more, I will be made whole? That doesn't make sense. If I pour my tumbler out, it's going to be emptier than when I first started. But I'm not only going to be made whole. Is it true that those around me will, will not just benefit from my sacrifice, but they might find a compelling reason to go and do likewise to love others more than themselves? Here's a verse. It's one of my favorite verses in Luke, by the way, 638, especially on this subject of giving. 
Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, press down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Some of the fullest, happiest, whole, and non-needy people that you'll ever meet are generous people who do not pine away in their victimness, always expecting others to feel sorry for them while drawing a few into their self-absorbed net of inverted love. These dried-up sad sacks are some of the stingiest among us, always expecting, always demanding, while pushing or punishing, rather, anyone who refuses to meet their unmeetable request. Indeed, God-centered and self-centered love is the clashing of two mindsets. Perhaps it would be benefit us for just a moment to take another coffee break. I want to ask you a few questions about this idea. How would you characterize your love? I'm talking about a pattern, a habit, not an episode, not a moment in time, because every one of us have experienced self-centered love in a moment of insanity, meaning we were not operating with the mind of Christ. Anything outside of the mind of Christ is insane. Sanity is Christ. And so I'm not talking about those moments of insanity. I'm talking about a characterization. How would you characterize your love? Is it primarily God-centered or self-centered? Do you know what would be an excellent leadership opportunity right now? Just to share this video or podcast uh, with a friend. Share the article at lifeovercoffee.com and then highlight this section, but give them a runway so they understand why you ask the question. By the way, the title of what I'm sharing with you at lifeovercoffee.com is, There is a reason you should love yourself and others. And so the leadership opportunity would be for them to answer that question about you, that person that knows you. If you're married, obviously that would be your spouse. If you have children, obviously that would be your children if they're old enough to answer such a question. How about this one? What are a few things that hinder you from loving others like Christ? I'm assuming that there might be at least one thing. I'm not judging, but maybe there is one thing that hinders you from loving others like Christ, a self-sacrificing love. I mean, part of it, one of the answers could be is it doesn't match up with our economy of thinking. According to our accounting, to love others more than ourselves or to empty that tumbler out, there will be less. And so we really don't have a, a context, a God-centered understanding of how that is not how it's going to happen. Going back to what Luke said, it's going to be dumped out. It's going to be overflowing. It's going to be pressed into your lap. Now, some people, one of the things that would hinder them, think about in church where uh, people talk about tithing and, and giving. I don't believe in tithing. That is a an Old Testament standard. We should give uh, joyfully, cheerfully as we are able. I mean, 10%, that's kind of a baseline. We should be giving more, not just our money, but also our time and gifts and talents. But when it comes to finances, there, there are people who say, no, I, I, that would hinder me from loving others uh, like Christ. And so assuming that there might be a hindrance in how you love others, what would it be? How about this? Perhaps another question to ask. 
What hinders you from loving others the way Christ has loved you? Perhaps you can think about that person who is a pain in your backside. I do not love them. Now, we have to distinguish here between loving a person and not loving what they do. I'm not talking about accepting a person. Uh, entirely. I'm not talking about accepting everything they are, everything they do, everything they believe. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that at all. We should have a, a baseline respect, and I will use love here as a synonym, but we should have a baseline respect for all people regardless of what they do because they are made in the image of God. We're not endorsing them. In fact, you you may love them so much that you may you may punish them. Uh, you may do hard things. You may uh, ask them to leave your home. Uh, you may disassociate with them because uh, you see that in church dis- disciplines, for example, in, in Matthew 18, that sometimes the way that you love them is that you do hard things for them. And so what person, friend or enemy in your mind uh, that you cannot love, even in the most minimal way. If you can't, then that person has some form of control over you. They have power over you because people spend time worrying about them, thinking about them, fixating on them, angry at them, frustrated with them. All of those are anti-love. If we love them, even in a baseline way, then we're not managed by them, but we're also honoring what God is teaching us. Will you share with a friend how God-centered love does not deplete, but fills you with confidence and desire to love others more? That you have already stepped into God's economy. You believe the Bible and you are practicing it functionally. You're not that person who is afraid of losing something if they give something, but you're that person who wholeheartedly realizes that it's blessed to give, more blessed to give than to receive. Now, typically, these questions that I'm asking, they poke at some of our hidden fears, especially those who are new to the self-sacrifice idea, or maybe those who are habitualized in self-centered thinking, whether that habitualization happened by their own choice, or maybe some people have been sinned against, offended so many times, a child rearing up in a hostile and dysfunctional home. They will learn to bring things in and not expose themselves or be vulnerable. They are taught and trained to be inverted they don't think about other people. And part of that is because they are in survivor, survivor mode. They have to think about themselves. And so their thoughts are always swirling around themselves. And they don't spend time thinking about others because the other people that have been around them all their lives hurt them in some way. And that becomes a submit setting time, the first 10 years of a, per, of a child's life. And it creates a habituation. So I, when I say that some people are habituated in self-centered thinking, sometimes it's because of what has happened to them. Sometimes it's because of their choices Almost always, it's a combination of both. And even when I talk about what happened to them, I am not 
I'm not saying that as though they are helpless victims. Uh, no, they have a responsibility. God's grace is greater than anything that has happened to us. We can overcome because of him who dwells in us. We have overcoming faith. But that doesn't deny the reality that some of us have been slammed into the ditches of life, and sometimes we respond sinfully to those things, not in a God-centered way, and so we become enmeshed in a self-centered lifestyle. And so these questions, sometimes they poke at our hidden fears, like the individual that I was just describing. They would fear that if I reached out to be kind or to love someone, I'm just going to get smacked down. I'm just going to be hurt. And they live with that cynical attitude. Most self-centered lovers fear the consequences of choosing a life of giving over receiving. Often they are guarding against losing something because their naturally trained minds teach them that receiving is better than giving, even with a person with a survival self-sufficient mindset. That is sin. It might sound something like this. If I think less of myself and more about others, will I be happy? Will I get what I crave, what I want? Will God care for me while I spend my life loving others? Well, the answer to all of those questions is a resounding yes. We see this at the end of Philippians' great other-loving passage. I want you to notice how the Father blessed Jesus for his sacrifice. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, it says this, In Christ, being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we know why he did that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the Son came to do the will of his Father. As he looked out over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen would gather her chicks. The love of Christ toward humanity. This verse goes on to say, after all of that giving, all of that sacrifice, even death on a cross, therefore, that's the conjunction. A conjunction grammatically joins two thoughts, and so he's connecting the point of death, even death on a cross, to his next thought, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Do you believe God will take care of you if you pursue him and others most of all? Now, embedded in that question is something that I'm not saying. I am not saying that God will not lead you on, on the backside of the desert for 40 years, as he did Moses. I am not saying that he will cause you to go in, will not cause you to go into a den of lions, as he did Daniel, or in a, a flaming hot fire, as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as he did with Peter being crucified upside down. 
as it be uh, with John being on the Isle of Patmos, uh, Abraham, uh, and all of his sacrifice as he left his home and went to a place that he did not know of, and then asked to put a, a, a knife, a blade, into his son's chest. Joseph sold to Ishmaelite tradesmen, ending up in a, a pit, prior to ending in a, in a pit, and then in a prison, etc. And you know all the characters. And so when I, when I say, do you believe that God will take care of you if you pursue him and others most of all, it doesn't mean that you will never have a thorn in your flesh. It does mean that God will take care of you if you love him most of all. Do you believe that trusting God in this matter of love's direction, the verb always going toward others, do you believe that is the best course for your life? Is there another master tugging at your soul? enticing you to think more about yourself, inverting love to where you become the subject and the object, that self-centered, narcissistic love? What would it take to become an other-centered lover, assuming that you need to change? And again, I know this doesn't apply to everyone, because some of you really have the direction set a place in your mind. You fixate. You fixate on God and others more than anything else. But perchance there's someone that is listening to this and they need to change the directional flow of their love habits. The question would be, what would it take to become an other-centered lover? Now, with all of those things said, I want to talk about the irony of love because we have to make a case for loving ourselves. I've already said that. There is the, there is the self-hate ditch where we hate something about us, don't like something about us, don't like the way God made us. Well, no, that's dishonoring. What we should be doing, we should be loving ourselves. Of course, in the other ditch, you have the self-centered lover who can only think about themselves. And so let's talk about that middle space. And this I call the irony of love because we understand the culture's twisted version of self-love, which they call self-esteem. All you have to do is take the word, turn it around, esteem yourself. Esteem yourself. Think highly of yourself. Love yourself. Love me accept yourself, affirm yourself, respect yourself, etc. They are both the senders of love and the receivers of it. But did you know that you're supposed to love yourself? Now, again, it is implied in the passage, the two great commandments that I shared earlier. Love God, love others as you love yourself. Now, this is where people get hung up. Do you realize that this love that I'm talking about, it's not self-centered at all. How sad would it be for image bearers not to like themselves? Let me say it plainly. How bad or how sad would it be for image bearers not like what God created? God created you. And for you not to like you, well, that is a problem. 
And so in that ditch over there of not liking an image bearer, that is problematic. Of course, we live in a post-Genesis 3-6 three, three, world. The fall has come, and so we can take love and we can twist it so much that it becomes so inverted that we implode. We take loving a person made in the image of God, meaning ourselves, and we take it too far. I mean, why would you not love yourself if God created you? To unlove something God made is ungodly. But someone might ask, are there dangers in loving yourself? Yeah, I, I've been stating that all along. That is quite obvious. Are there dangers with anything we do? Of course, we can take every good thing that God has given us and we can use it in the wrong way. We can, we can transgress the line of love. We can transgress the line of eating. We can transgress the line of communication. And we can transgress the line of intimacy. We can transgress anything. I'm not sure if there's anything that we wouldn't transgress. And so, sure, there are dangers in everything that we do, and there are dangers in loving ourselves. But risk should not cause a person to overreact, jumping headlong into the ditch of self-hate and self-harm. Jesus did say that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and the implication is clear. We are to love ourselves. James said a similar thing in his passage on the tongue. This is in James 3, 9 and 10. He says, with it, talking about our tongue, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Well, we are people and we find people, if I could use the word curse here, that they curse themselves. As I've been saying earlier, they don't like themselves for whatever reason. It is self-hate. From the same mouth, James says, Come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Let me push the envelope. The reason we love the gay person not what they do, not the sin that they're living in. And the reason we love the liberal-minded person is the same reason we love ourselves, because God created all of us in His image. What biblical reason would anyone have not to love an image-bearer? Let me give you that caveat again. I'm not speaking about loving what they do. There is a base level. And when we see the most hateful people in our culture, we should be sad for them, broken because of their transgressions, because we know that they are image bearers. Sometimes our love looks like tears. Sometimes our love looks like deep sadness because we see image bearers doing some of the most heinous things that you could ever imagine. I act out my love for myself every day when I have a headache. When I have that headache, I take medication. Why? Because I love me. When I'm tired, I go to bed because I love myself. We were here the other evening. We were doing hospitality as we do 
and uh, some folks were staying late. Actually, it was um, uh, young adults, or our children and their friends, or it was a friend, I believe it was, and uh, she was here, and uh, I went as far as I could. I said, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Y'all know what to do. Check the lights, lock the doors, etc. Stay as long as you want, uh, but I'm going to bed. When I'm tired, I go to bed. You say, well, love God, love others. Well, I love me too. And I didn't love this lady that was here, but I went to bed because I love myself. I do not deprive myself of food when I'm hungry because I love myself. The truth is that I do not hate myself, and God doesn't want me to go around poor-mouthing and hating myself. Self-worth, and that's really the word that we're looking for here, synonymous with made in God's image. Self-worth and self-love are different things. One of the worst manifestations of groveling, grumpy, navel-gazing self-haters among Christians is the woe-is-me, worm-theology worldview that does not value the image-bearer. They have twisted the words of Christ to say, love God and love others as you hate yourself. That makes no sense at all. You should love yourself because of who created you. The painting finds value in itself because of the painter. If you see a painting laying on the road and a car has uh, has tire tracks left tire tracks on it, you would probably well that's no value that's no value at all. But if you saw a painting laying in the road and it had Rembrandt in the bottom right hand corner and it was legit, whether it was run over or not, That thing is valuable. The painting finds value in itself because of the painter. If the painter had no value, the painting would be worthless. Our painter has inestimable worth because of who he is, and we are worth something too. So here's my point. There is a reason you should love yourself and others with all the caveats included, meaning stay out of both of them ditches. Let me wrap up with a few thoughts. Do you know how to love yourself biblically? Maybe one of the ways that you can really get this fixed in your mind. Will you share why you love all image bearers, including yourself, with a friend? One of the things that we do here often in our Mastermind program and with our private community here on our forums, we try to envision them that if you really want to learn something, then go out and share that something with another person. What if you went out and you shared with a, another image bearer? why you love them, why you love yourself, and explain to them from a biblical perspective. Number two, would you be willing to talk about the dangers of loving yourself? Now, these are the caveats. These are the ditches. When would self-love cross the line? Has your love ever become self-centered? Of course it has. We all, we all have become insane at one point or another. Now, we don't want to make that a habituation. Obviously, if you have become insane uh, by loving yourself in a self-centered way, why or how did it become that way? And what do you need to do to change? Number three, do you struggle with shame, guilt, maybe self-harm? 
You could add other hateful things, self-hating things here as well. But this is an important question. There are some people who have turned inward, and, and all they can do is think about themselves. And I don't say that harshly or unkindly, as I was talking earlier about the child who has been reared no other way. It's the only category that they have. You will see this with adoptive children that come from traumatic backgrounds, things that many of us cannot even understand. Well, they have a lot to work through, and the shame when they think of themselves and, and the guilt. Some of them push it so far to self-harm, even getting into addictive lifestyles just as a way of punishing themselves. How can someone help you overcome these problems, if that happens to be you, to find satisfaction and to find rest as one created in God's image? And if you are that person, I, I would just appeal to you to find someone who is competent in God's Word who will be able to walk you through it. Now, we have a lot of resources at lifeovercoffee.com, and our resources are free. And so I would just encourage you to take advantage of them. Just go to our website, search for whatever you want to. You'll probably find something that would help you. Number four, I've asked several questions throughout this. And what I would encourage you to do, because what I would want you to do is to review those questions for self-reflection and then also make them a part of how you would help your friends, particularly those who are struggling with guilt and shame and, and self-harm. And to find it on our website, if you want this transcript, please get it. There is a reason, here's the title, there is a reason you should love yourself and others. You see, if you know someone who is leaning into self-harm, for example, uh, their wrong focus on themselves, it'll keep them inverted. They will be the subject and the object of love, but it won't be a God-centered love. It will deepen them into self-centered thinking until they come to that crossroad of repentance or suicide. And it happens all too often. They just choose to end it all. Many of them do not know that they can repent meaning they can change. There is a reason you should love yourself and others. Please get the transcript on our website. Feel free to share our content with anyone, with 10,000 of your closest friends. Share this podcast and share the video and, and the article. Find other resources and share them. We get comments regularly. Uh, from people who use our resources that way. I find no greater joy when folks are doing that. Uh, one of our supervisors asked me uh, last evening, he said, hey, our church wants to put together a care package, solid resources so that they can find help. Yes, the answer is yes. Please uh, share our resources with your church. If we can help you, hit the Get In Touch feature on our website. The best way to find help from us is to become a supporting member of our ministry and then access our private forums. It's a small community on the other side of the paywall. We have to do that because we reach hundreds of thousands of people every month, and we just can't answer every question. 
And I say that with sadness, but it's also the truth, and you need to know that. That's why we make our resources free so that people can come up to the buffet and feed themselves. That is our best response because God has blessed the ministry in such a way that we cannot keep up with every individual, and so we give our stuff away. And we ask for folks to invest in our ministry so that we can continue to give it away to even more people. It can be exponential as more people invest in what we're doing here at Life Over Coffee. If you have a question about how you can invest, uh, you can do it a couple of different ways. You can become a supporting member and benefit from the forums, or you can just become a donor. Either one is fine with us, but please let us know. And for those of you who would be willing to pray, pray. Ask God to send more investors in this ministry, not just so we can keep up, but so we can reach more people with the practical message of Christ. Thank you, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.